Welcome back to the second hour of Love Babs Love Talk. I'm delighted to be here this morning. I just got word from Miss Ruth uh, Wilson Gilmore. She'll see me in five minutes. <laughs> so that'll give me time to, that'll give me a, a, a real time to sort of read her bio because I want to do that. And uh, and sometimes, you know, when people are on, I don't want to do it when they're on because it takes up all the time. So what I'm going to do is... <laughs> I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna read what she sent me uh, the other week, and uh, oh God, why can't I type this morning? You know. So anyway, she was born and raised. Ruth Wilson Gilmore was born and raised in New Haven. Um, she is a professor of Earth and Environmental Science and director of the Center for Place, Culture, and Politics at the City University of New York Graduate Center. Co-founder of many grassroots organizations, uh, Ms. Gilmore is author of Abolition Geography, Essays Toward Liberation, uh, and Golden Gulag, uh, Persons, Surplus, Crises, and Opposition in Globalizing California. Uh, Change Everything is forthcoming from Haymarket. She and Paul Gilroy co-edited uh, Stuart Hall, Selected Writings on Race and Difference, the Duke University Press, 2021. Uh, the uh, Antipode documentary, Racial Capitalism with Ruth uh, Wilson Gilmore features her uh, internationalist work. She has lectured in Africa, Asia, Europe, and North America. Honors include the Association of American uh, Geographers Lifetime Achievement Award in 2020, the 2020 uh, Lannan uh, Foundation Lifetime Cultural Freedom Prize with Mike Davis and Angela Davis, Angela Y. Davis, with uh, uh, and, and the 2022 Marguerite Casey Freedom Scholar Prize. Uh, Ms. Gilmore is a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Sciences, you know, the people that give out the Oscars. <laughs> so. So yeah, so she let me know she's coming on in five minutes. Although her husband sent me a text this morning and said he, she was very much looking forward to the conversation and that she was up early this morning having her coffee. So she was an early riser. I didn't have the heart to tell him to text him back to say, ooh, I'm still under the covers. Because <laughs> I know. And, uh, and you know, she's only she's only a few years older than me. Like, I mean, she's like a decade and a half older than me, but still. I feel like we're in the same age cohort, but she was up and I was not. So there's that. Um, so she'll be on in a few minutes and we'll talk about uh, uh, anything that she wants to talk about. I told her, I said, you can talk about whatever you want to talk about, uh, Miss Gilmore. Uh, I'm just here to, I'm just here to, I'm just here. <laughs> uh, I'm just here. So, uh, uh, but I, I, I do want you to know, uh, I have the book. I've been had the book. She signed the book for me and I've been holding on to it uh, since, since she gave it to me, October 22nd. So freedom is not a mere principle, but a place. And, uh, and, and I, I think this book probably is for academics, maybe. But uh, listen, don't be afraid to touch an academic book. That's what I say. You know, sometimes, sometimes you can learn a great deal uh, by just coming out of your comfort zone and reading books that are, you know, might be above your pay grade, but that's how you get to your pay grade by reading stuff that's a little harder than you uh, anticipate. Um, and uh, so, 
it might take some 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 doing but it it i i would say it would be well worth the the effort and the attempt to uh 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 read read this book you know particularly if you if you if you if you lean toward being an intellectual right if you if you like like big thinking and deep thinking and you know you want something a little more something with some substance and uh so i'm looking forward to uh her coming out and we talking about this so anyway uh but there's a there's a piece in the book uh southern new england the Mil military industrial complex and she talks about i was born and raised in new haven connecticut a small city dominated at first by the tight-fisted puritans but then over the centuries shaped by the native americans many of whom passed as or into white or black the free black people southern and eastern europeans and puerto ricans dominicans and most lately uh, Chicana, Chicanos, and Mexicans. Um, it has become a Catholic city with a significant Jewish population sometime in the early 20th century during the height of the biggest immigration boom in, in uh, absolute numbers in the history of the United States. So New Haven was ruled first overtly and then behind the scenes by WASP, you know, white Anglo, -Sang white Saxon, white Anglo-Saxon um, Protestants uh, until they didn't care about it anymore. And, and when it ceased being a prosperous policy around 1980, the principle of uh, dispersed inequity, uh, inequality um, that Robert Dahl famously and erroneously concluded in 1957 would be the future of the U.S. multi-ethnic republic uh, appeared to work well enough to warn his book on New Haven politics during the post-World War II period when the Elm City's two principal products of economic activity, guns and students, um, were being turned out in high quality and at high cost. But when things started to get bad in New Haven and throughout the United States, uh, Dow wisely repudiated his signature concept, even though U.S. training political science doctoral candidates must, to this day, commit its era to heart. So every New Haven school child of the long 20th century learned about the political and material marvels achieved by the white men whose names mark many of the city's major streets. Judges Goff, Dixwell, and Whaley, who signed the death warrant for Charles I and fled to New Haven when Charles II took the throne. Eli Whitney, interchangeable parts, innovator, wartime profiteer, and cotton gin engineer, and Oliver Fisher Winchester, developer and manufacturer of the repeating rifle, the gun that quote-unquote won the West. Youngsters uh, toured their monuments, reported to each other on their accomplishments, and sang and danced their praise in dead serious amateur, uh, amateur musicals performed for elected and other uh, elites. Killing kings, mass-producing weapons, and framing uh, accumulation as an inalienable right coalesced into white supremacy, the modern theory and practice that explains how, over the past few centuries, authority delved from the person of the monarch to one and only one sovereign race. That race's divinely conferred and energetically exercised freedom to have, to take, to kill, to rule, and to judge when any of these actions is right or wrong, individually and in aggregate, kept institutions like Winchester, Arms Factory, and Yale University humming day and night. So 
So killing somebody has always been on the American agenda and avoiding being caught in American crosshairs and ontological priority. Uh, for example, the lessons white supremacists violently offered to black GIs after World War II can be summed up in a couple of imperatives. Expect nothing and don't wear your uniform. Lynching, which had minimally abated during the United States' brief engagement in the war, heated up uh, in the aftermath. There's always an increase in murder in the United States after the country goes off to war and wins, just as there's always a sudden spike after executions, which together form strong evidence that the state model's behavior for the polity the bloody red summer of 1919, best known for the Palmer raids against leftist political and labor organization, was simultaneously uh, a time of intense racist lynching in the name of white supremacy. The class and race wars were related rather than coincidental. Not surprisingly, J. Ever Hoover began his rise to power as the chief engineer of capitalist white supremacist policy policing by serving as a technocratic overseer for many of the 1919 actions. He was still uh, around as head of the FBI when over an 18 month period in 1969 to 1971, federal and local police destroyed the Black Panther Party. In 1969, no less than in 1919, rhetoric about violence and violent action brought into view a perpetual enemy who must always be fought but can never be vanquished presented as, as simultaneously criminal acting outside the law and alien not belonging to the pol to the uh, politity when black gis came back after world war ii they were not about to expect nothing or hide their uniforms in the bottom of a trunk having heard from the wives and fathers sisters and friends about the work radicals were doing stateside to advance the double victory cause the fight against U.S. racism as part of the fight against fascism, uh, many decided to fight to get well-paying blue-collar jobs in factories. In New Haven, it was making guns. Winchester was the biggest factory in the New England gun belt, and the rifles used to kill indigenous people were still being produced long after the theft of the continent had been completed. Winchester's uh, became the place where Black men went to work after doing their two or three or four years in the armed services, protect, protecting Berlin, South Korea, Okinawa, Thailand, Laos, South Vietnam. They knew how to shoot. They worked overtime on the assembly line. The wives worked at Yale in low-paying jobs, and their children sang and danced when they were not rehearsing Jump Jim Crow. They wobbled about superior inventions and modern points of view. So that's just uh, some of this wonderful book. So if you if you want to know something, this is the book to like get into, particularly around if you if you into the history of New Haven, and and we all should be uh, into the history of New Haven if we're here. So here is the wonderful, exciting Ruth Wilson Gilmore. Hello, unmute yourself. Let's hello, hello, hello. It is nice. I was just reading from your book, if you don't mind. I was reading. I was reading about the New Haven, the New Haven piece that you were. You know, we're talking about the Southern New England, the military industrial complex. So I was just reading it out loud till you got cool. on the air. How are here you? I am. Here I am. I'm all right. How are you? Listen, it's, you know, the weather is all right. I mean, it's not snow on the ground. 
How you feeling? Are, are you loving all the accolades of the of the mural? Because the mural is stunning. It is really beautiful. I am so moved by it. It just it 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 amazes me. Everything about it that so many people put their mind to that project. I didn't have anything to do with it. <laughs> other than one day somebody said to me, would you mind if we pursued this? And I said, oh, no, please go right ahead. <laughs> and then they pursued and they pursued. And that it started, this is the most amazing thing. It started in a, a, a reading group and a study group in high school. Wow. That's where it began. Wow. And so what um, were you reading? You're talking about you. This is this whole life that you have started then? No, 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 no. I'm oh, talking no, the about the mural. mural. The, cura the, the, the creating mural. of the mural. The mural oh, that I didn't is, have anything to do with. I love that. Isn't that yeah. a great story, though, that these yeah. young people were like, we want to put Miss Ruthie Wilson up there on the, <laughs> <laughs> on the biggest building in, in, the, in that neighborhood. And, yeah, and yeah. And, and let me just say to anybody who's listening, and I hope it's everybody in greater New Haven and in the listening area, go to Possible Futures Bookstore, which is a beautiful bookstore and also a community space where people can sit in comfort and read and have a bite to eat and check out the new titles and hear readings and support this amazing and important institution in the neighborhood. Oh, absolutely. I'm there every day. Excellent. <laughs> I'm, in, I'm in there every day. Lauren Anderson is a, is a dear, dear, dear sister friend. And, uh, and I've watched this bookstore become um, just a, a, a centering place for the community and, and for the city, really. So, so it was <laughs> lovely to meet you that day. Uh, when they did the unveiling. So so, so you, you're not in New Haven anymore. You haven't been here for a long time, but your roots are very much here. I mean, mm -hmm. your father has a whole library named after him, <laughs> which is which which has got to be sort of surreal on a lot of levels, not because he's not deserving, but because not many people have a library in their in their name. So that is so true. In fact, um, as you know, uh, but listeners might not know, the city of New Haven, the public libraries had not built and opened a new library for, I think, 40 years mm -hmm. before they um, uh, committed the resources to produce that library over in the hill which is uh, the neighborhood where my father did or centered most of his political work over his very long life. So it's not where I grew up. I grew up on, on the other side on Gough, but that's where, you know, he uh, helped form Hill Parents Association, which became eventually so many different things and produced things like on the one hand, Hill Development Corporation, mm -hmm. and on the other hand, the Calvin Hill Health Clinic, and many other things. And I just want to say that as the daughter of somebody who organized in that town, his hometown, his whole life, he, through organizing, helped touch people's lives, but also helped so many people touch other people's lives which I think is what the heart of what organizing is supposed to be. It's not that you, the great man of history, do everything. It's that you enable people to do something that's meaningful to them that 
encourages them to do more and encourages them to encourage other people to do more. Mm-hmm. And that's the beauty of being his daughter. I, I was going to, so, so that leads me to ask. So I, I get the sense just, just from reading a little bit of this book and knowing a little <laughs> bit about you is that, um, uh, that you have that same spirit of, uh, uh, social justice work, abolition work, bringing, uh, uh, doing work in community, uplifting community. Talk a little bit about that. I mean, I I don't know if you could grow up in a house with a father like that and not have some of that in your veins. Well, I, I doubt it's possible. And you can talk to my brothers. I have three brothers and they can tell their own story. Um, I think one of the things that was so um, uh impressive to me as a child, a little girl, and that shaped very much how I think about the world was the fact that one, as I've already said, my father was organizing all the time. So when I was very little, um, four or five years old, he was busy organizing the machinists at Winchester's. This was not a small thing to do. This is a big thing to do. Mm-hmm. And he organized the machinists and they had their election and established a union there. And one of the images on the mural is taken from a newspaper photograph of him that day that the election happened. And so when I was five, obviously, I didn't understand everything that was going on, but I noticed so many things. I noticed people coming to the house, very small house full of people, but people come into the house for these meetings and people parked across the street watching the people who came to the house for the meetings. And thinking as I did, because, you know, I've been a nerd since I was born. So thinking as I did, wondering, well, so how does this connect to other things? How does this connect to what in, you know, 1954, was uh, not quite exactly called civil the civil rights movement, but that was part of what was in the air. But it was, what are we going to do to realize the full emancipation of the Negro? We were still Negroes. We had not become Black yet, but we were like right on the edge of becoming Black people. And so, you know, listening and watching and never being discouraged from asking a question. Like neither of my parents ever said, why are you asking this question? It's none of your business. You're just a little girl. They would explain to me what. And they were, you know, both high school graduates. They both went to Hill House High School. They were high school graduates who had a decent, in those days, public education, but not any kind of fancy education. But they were people who were like constantly learning because they saw that as a necessity for our emancipation. Wow. Constantly learning. You couldn't stop learning. And even like at Dixwell Avenue Congregational Church, where I went, is where my parents met, it's where my grand, my mother's parents met at Dixwell, and um, and in Sunday school, we you know went to the back. Not this isn't the church that's now in Dixwell Avenue. It's the old church, which was a mm-hmm. frame wooden structure across the street. 
And the Sunday school was in the back. The fellowship hall was really quite a, um, uh, it has seen better days, but it's where we we had our Sunday school classes. It was a little mezzanine that had little dividers so we could have our classes. And one of our, and my father was a Sunday school teacher and a, a gentleman called Pete Harris, Mr. Pete Harris was a Sunday school teacher. And Mr. Pete Harris taught us the things that, we gathered to learn for Sunday school in the congregational church. And, or more, he taught us about SYNQ and the Amistad and all of that. <laughs> there was a picture of SANC on the wall. And the way he said it was SYNQ, it was SANC. But, but this, so we learned Black history, or in those days, Negro history, in the context of Sunday school. So, we were constantly learning more so that we would be more likely to do things, braver to do things, and less likely to be surprised about things we hadn't thought about or mm -hmm. to accept lousy explanations for why things were the way they were, right? Because there's nothing but lousy explanations then and now for why things are the way they are. I'm with you. All right. Okay. <laughs> I like that. Okay. All right. So, so, so you, you grow up in New Haven and you, you go to Hill. Do you go to Hill house? Where do you go to school? I didn't. So in, um, oh, this is a whole story. So in 1959, the day prospect Hill school for girls, a little prep school day school, um, decided to do something that a lot of these institutions did, which was to desegregate before they were compelled to do it. So while Brown versus Board of, the Edu of Education had already passed and the principle of separate was but equal had already been torn down in the law, that didn't require especially any private school to change how they selected their, their students. But some small number of people who were in charge of Day Prospect Hill, uh, as, it, as it was known, decided that they would desegregate. So they you know, called the minister of Dixwell Avenue Congregational Church and said, do you have any girls who can sit for the entrance exam? And as it turned out, I was the only one who was even at least been interested in meaning my parents and I <laughs> determined that this would probably be a good thing for me to try to do. Not in order to isolate me from the greater community, but to do race work, go desegregate that school, and also to let me fulfill myself as a nerd and go to a school where everybody's busting books all the time, which is something that I always like doing. Wow. So I went and I sat for the exam. I was nine years old. Wow. It was easy. It was such an easy exam. I still don't understand why it was an exam. And I sat with it. All the other girls in the room taking the exam were white. So I don't think they made a special exam for me that was easy, but who knows? Who cares? 
And um, and they accepted me. And I spent eight years there, fifth grade through 12th grade. Wow. And it didn't, the additional uh, Black students, Black girls, didn't start enrolling until I was well into junior high school. So it was just me for several years. And, you know, it was, it was a struggle. It was a struggle because while some small number of people at DPH decided they should desegregate, they didn't expect me to be the one to show up. <laughs> and they were like kind of, um, some of them horrified because they sort of wanted a more um, polished uh, specimen of Negro okay. girlhood. Okay. Right. Somebody who did not come from a working class family, whose father was not a firebrand, who um, would just like wear the clothes and use the, you know, do the code switch and use the language and uh, just be like a brown skinned white girl, basically, to cite uh, Francine Windance Twine's work. And so it was like, it was sort of a struggle. I enjoyed the nerd part. I really love, I mean, there were like 10 girls in my fifth grade class. Like it was, it was great for me because I could ask any number of questions about anything I wanted. And the teacher had nothing but time to answer my questions. <laughs> um, and we read interesting things and then we read things that were not interesting, but I could think about them. And then one day, uh, one of the girls who had been very nice to me at the outset um, uh, took me into the into a corner and said, Ruth, somebody just told me you're a Negro. And I'm like, what on earth? <laughs> and I said, well, yeah. Like, what do you think I'm doing here? And she said, don't worry about it. You look like an Indian. And I thought, okay, everything is wrong with this. Like everything is wrong with this. Whoa. So I, um, in my kind of independent way, decided to get revenge. So she was a really poor student. She was a rich girl with very, very indulgent parents who gave her everything. She might've been an only child. Um, she was a terrible student. She never prepared for class. Um, uh, just awful. So I thought, okay, I can deepen her vulnerability here. So I hid her books so that she would be an even worse student. And uh, then I made the mistake. Everybody was listening. He's got to listen to me. Um, do not do as I did, because then I made the mistake of confiding to a friend that I had done this thing. And the friend was so horrified, she went and knocked me out to the headmistress. And then I was humiliated in front of the whole class. And I had to go get the books that I had hidden and give them back to her. And then she withdrew from the school. And then the school decided I couldn't return. Wow. Because I was too immature. That was the way they put it. My maturity was in question. And uh, so I thought, oh, well, that's too bad. And, you know, here I failed my race work. And, oh, but I, I still... you were young. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't regret what I did, but I regret what I did, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so 
this was this was in the fifth grade. It was the sixth grade. So that summer, you know, I was like, oh, oh, oh. And the way they told me I couldn't come back was they took away my scholarship. Okay. So they didn't just say, we don't want you. They said, if you can pay your own way, you can come back. And I, I don't know what listeners know about the changes in, in the economy from then until now, but that school cost, if you paid for it, $1,000 a year at a time when I think my mother's income from her full-time job was a little under $2,000 a year, Mm. right? So you see, there was like no way my parents could like write a check and send me back to Day Prospect. So I started at Sheridan Junior High School up there in Westville. And I was, after two years at Day Prospect Hill, I was kind of um, an outsider because I started to imitate the sounds that those girls made at DPH, i.e. My, my, my accent had shifted. I really mean my accent. It wasn't even the words themselves. It's kind of how I shaped my words. And everybody was thinking, who do you think you are? And you know, what's your problem? And I was trying to figure out how to get myself back into my world with people I grew up with. And then one day, uh, right before, Sheridan had already started, but Day Prospect had not yet uh, started because they were on the Yale schedule. One day, somebody from Day Prospect called and said, we found a scholarship. Ruthie can come back. I was like, well, that's strange. And I still don't know like what the whole story was. I'm sure my father made noise because he always made noise. But I also think that a woman who was one of the kind of um, like a dean at that school, whose name was, I kid you not, Mrs. Christian. It was like she was living her name, right? Uh, I think she probably paid my way to come back to school. So I went back. And uh, but with that self-consciousness of the little time I'd been at, at at Sheridan, I thought, all right, even though you think you're not becoming one, you're not becoming something else, you've got to be like constantly vigilant not to become what you don't intend to become. So imagine my joy many years later when I sat down and read W.E.B. Du Bois. And he talked about double consciousness. And I said, oh, there we have it. It's a gift. It's a gift if you use it. So that's the story of how I wound up not going to Hill House. I went to Day Prospect and the rest is history. Wow. That's a a lot of good story there. That's a lot of good story. So, all right. So, you know, when I saw you last, and we only have like a, a few more minutes Miss mm-hmm. um, Gilmore, mm-hmm. uh, but I I wanted to hear your thoughts on the state of the world as it is now, mm-hmm. because if we didn't get a chance, because I I really wanted to talk to you about this mass and incar- hyper mass incarceration mm-hmm. moment that we are in, but um, mm-hmm. but I I just just want to get your thoughts on where you know where we where do you think we are in the world right now? Okay, where are we where are we in the world? I think first we are. In as such a an enormous and deep upheaval globally, 
what is going on in Gaza is connected with the situation in the United States, for example, not only because resources from Washington go to contain and suppress the people of Gaza, but also because the the U.S. and many other places that are in the overdeveloped or rich world have mindfully deepened inequality across the board and then um, uh, empowered the forces of organized violence, those police, prisons, uh, immigration, military, to mop up the um, devastation produced by that inequality. So I don't mean only, oh, people's incomes are different. I mean, the organized abandonment that people experience across the board, whether it's underfunded schools, whether it's healthcare that's not uh, reachable, whether it's quality of food. And this is not only in urban United States, it's urban and rural as well. Mm. We know that wherever inequality is deepest, the use of prison is more prevalent. And this is true in the United States, which is off the charts. There is no place on earth that locks up more people as a rate of the, of, um, the population or absolute numbers, so just the raw number, than the United States, off the charts. But also places where inequality is deep Prison, the use of prison and the empowerment of police, police is high. So the United Kingdom, but also Brazil, also South Africa. So you see, it is not even only in the global north or economic north that these things are happening, but in a variety of situations. All of that means that people in many places are struggling to figure out new solutions to old problems because old solutions don't work or figure out solutions to new problems, which might mean using old methods to, to resolve them or might mean learning new methods to resolve them. This is happening everywhere and we can see it you know, I'm speaking kind of in very general terms now, but we can see it if we look, for example, at how um, extensively and intensively labor unions are organizing today in the United States. Whether we look at the Amazon um, uh, workers organizing in, in that behemoth firm, or we look at nurses organizing all over the United States. Uh, whether we look at um, people taking to the streets in 2020 and trying to demand that the social wage, which is, say, tax money, be spent on life-affirming rather than life-ending practices. And we can see this around the world. Um, the That is running up against 
people who are for a number of different reasons content with the situation as it is and are either willing to ignore its outcomes or to fight to preserve the system. There's like quite a wide range. And so we see on the one hand, the rise of fascism around the planet. This has not been on the rise the way it is now since before I was born. So I'm gonna say before we were born, right? Um, the That has been rising in many places, not only in the old fascist centers of, of uh, Central and, and um, Southern Europe, but elsewhere, um, including India, which doesn't, I'm not saying the biggest country on the world is all fascist, hardly. But the government that is currently in power has very strong fascist tendencies. And there are many other parties in that country who are pushing back against that and organizing. There are unions organizing everywhere. And there are also you know, increased levels of police forces everywhere to prevent people from um, figuring out and enacting what they need to be all right in the world. Whether to be all right means have housing, to be all right means have schooling, to be all right means have transportation or roads to travel, um, healthcare and so forth. I see this all over the planet. I've had the opportunity to travel many places and to sit down with organizers on the ground in many, many places. And also, um, perhaps people reach out to me, like they can find me. And I'll get an email from somebody in Singapore who says, we've been organizing here in Singapore and we didn't realize we are abolitionists till we happened to read some of your work or read about you. And now we're doing this here. In, in Southeast Asia and other people in South Africa who some years ago, five, six, well, a little more than that, eight years ago were saying, well, we don't know about abolition. We have, we have struggles, we have problems, but we don't know that abolition is the path to uh, relieving ourselves, which is to say emancipating ourselves from the problems that weigh us down. That is shifting as well. Um, and one of the reasons I think that some of these um, encouraging shifts are happening is one, the dreadful situation with the rise of fascism, with the increased militarism, with climate change, making people see things perhaps more clearly than they had, which is to say, see distinctions more starkly than they had appeared to them before. But also, insofar as, you know, what I was talking about, about my father and talking about, about my own childhood, the, the thing that people are doing everywhere is using their combined energy through their organizing their organizations, whatever they might be, faith communities, unions, et cetera, et cetera, social movements, to 
figure out how to emancipate themselves, which is to say to solve the problems that they face, and at the same time, to think about if they solve the problem today, the one that they came together to solve, what are they going to have to do tomorrow morning when they wake up? Does today's solution produce more opening or is it going to be something we have to tear down tomorrow? And that is, you know, constantly a question on our minds to come back to the United States for a moment where now that kind of mass incarceration is on everybody's lips, there are a lot of solutions to mass incarceration that set my hair on fire because they're not really solutions. They're just extending the carceral system, privatizing it into people's homes, right? Uh, leaning on families to do uh, certain kinds of things rather than undoing the criminalization that at the moment um, has uh, uh, effects on the possibility for half of the US workforce, half of them, to get the kinds of jobs they want or need, half of them. So they haven't necessarily been locked up, but they have a disqualifying um, arrest or conviction record. And I wanna say one other thing. You're listening very patiently and I know I'm a little long-winded, but I wanna say one more thing. Some people, who listen to me or show up at my talks will say, yeah, but Gilmore, what about harm? You know, what about interpersonal violence? What about, what about the fact that so many people, especially disillusioned or alienated young people, uh, use violence for speech? They're unhappy, they hurt somebody, they shoot somebody. Like, what are you talking about when you're talking about abolition? And the answer is that there are at least a million experiments going on around the world where people in situations where vulnerable people have been tending to use violence as speech to help them transform their frustrations and their energy into something that is positive and meaningful. And that criminalization is not the answer to that problem. The problem has got to be creating an intensifying community. So I have a little grand grandniece there in New Haven now, her name is Trina Ransom, who has just gone to work for the Board of Education, who's, this is her dream. Her dream, and she's a mom, she's a single mom, she's got two daughters, and, and, and her dream is to figure out how to help young people who feel, my words, not hers, alienated, discouraged, to use, for example, their creativity with language and other forms to figure out how to speak their frustration before they pick up a weapon or harm somebody. And it's a really, it's a very beautiful thing. There are no guarantees, but we do know that mass incarceration has devastated individuals and communities. It has been my absolute pleasure to talk to you. And my producer is like flagging at me because <laughs> we have to go. Okay. But uh, I want you to come back on because I want to have more conversation with you because this was wonderful.
Thank, Thank you, you. Ruthie Wilson Gilmore. You've given us a lot to uh, discern and contemplate. <laughs> Thank you for having me on. I'm really oh, my honored. absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Enjoy your weekend. Thanks. Bye. And say hi to your husband for me. I will. Thank you. Thank you all. Have a good weekend. I'll be back on Monday. <laughs> Bye.